One of the weird things that's happening in our culture right now is there is an obsession, an obsession with zombies. Have you noticed this? It's like everywhere you turn, there's an obsession with zombies. There are TV shows, there are movies, there are books. There's even this thing called the zombie run, where you pay to run a race where people dressed like zombies chase you. And people, people do this. They, they pay to be chased by zombies. You can sign up for the 5K or the 10K. They don't have a full marathon because zombies aren't in that much shape, but they have a shorter, a shorter deal. You know, one of the ways I know a moment is kind of has hit is there's emojis for it. So on your phone, you can choose the, the male emoji or the female emoji. And, uh, and you go, Scott, why are we so obsessed with emojis? Well, I don't know, but I've been thinking about it. And I think some of it is that, that we're, we're experiencing a growing distrust of the people around us. We're kind of not trusting the people that live near us anymore, like our neighbors and the people around us. I think that there's this sense that the future may be worse than the past, that things are going bad. And so the idea of like apocalypse is, is not that far off. I think we're finally reminding ourselves that, that humanity is broken and that we're capable of terrible, terrible things. And so in that kind of context, it's no wonder that what's popular today is zombies, post-apocalyptic young adult fiction, and superhero movies. There's a reason that all of this is so popular. It's that we have this growing, nagging sense, no matter what you believe about God, there's this growing, nagging sense that the future may not be good. The person next to me may not be good. That I may need to be scared of what lies ahead. And that's why I think there's been so much response over the last few weeks to this series we're in called Overcomers. Looking at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Recognizing that, hey, we're living, many of you are living in some real hard times. Not theoretical hard times, not kind of, you know, bad days, but in a really difficult season. And you're asking, how do I have hope? If the future does go bad, then how do I live with hope? Because the reason that God gave us the book of Revelation is not for us to invent charts and go really weird on him. The reason he gave us Revelation is the same reason he gave it to the people it was originally written to. So that in the middle of an unprecedented difficulty, they could live with hope and they could stay on mission. And that's why, for many of you, you've stayed away from Revelation for so long. Because the people that you knew who were most into Revelation were the people who were the most negative and the least on mission. They spent all their times with their charts, and they were negative and critical about the future. When if you read this book well, two things will happen. One, you'll continue to live on the mission that God gave you. And two, You'll have hope because you know how the story ends. And so that's what we're doing over the next few weeks is we're saying, hey, we don't want to be the people who are despondent and negative and buying into all of this negativity going on. We're the people who are going to be hopeful. We're the people who are towards the future and go, yeah, things may get bad, but we know who's in charge and we know how it ends. And so over the last few weeks, I got a little more help than I wanted because I lost my voice for the first time ever last week and 
Josh McClintock saved the day. He's my superhero. Um, we've been covering some, yeah, you can give him a round of applause. He did a great job last week. He got a little snarky up here. He made a few jokes, you know. I was watching and I was like, man, this is saucy Josh today, you know. But over the last week, we've been talking about some things that are dangers when we're in hard times. We talked about the danger of losing our heart, the danger of giving up during suffering, the danger of compromising our morals during suffering, and the danger of compromising our doctrine. And today, I've titled today's message, Zombie Church. And the message is about the temptation for us to be barely alive. That says barley. That's awesome. Barley alive. Yeah, I missed that one. Zombies and beer, you know, um, barely alive and almost dead. And so today we're going to look at the story of a city called Sardis. Sardis is one of these seven cities that receive letters at the beginning of Revelation. And if you've been following this map, this journey we've been on, John's courier started here at Ephesus and he went to Smyrna and Pergamum. Thyatira was last week and Sardis is today. If you're wondering, are any of these letters like good letters? Come back next week. Because next week is the the fun letter to the church at Philadelphia. It's the the all positive letter. But today, we're going to look at the city of Sardis. And Sardis was built up into some mountainsides, and it had these massive walls. And in, in the ancient era, you needed to have walls around your city to protect you from attack. And so Sardis had these amazing walls, and it was it was almost impenetrable. But twice in its history, Sardis was captured. Once by King Cyrus of the Persians, and once by Alexander the Great of the Greeks. And both times, when Sardis was captured, Alexander and Cyrus did the exact same thing. They waited until it was dark. They creeped up the mountain. They climbed the walls, and there was nobody guarding the city. Because Sardis thought, nobody can get up our walls. Nobody can conquer us. And they were conquered in the night while they were sleeping, because they were arrogant. We said in this series that the story of the city is attached to the message they get. And if that's ever been true, it's true today with Sardis. So if you got a copy of the handout when you walked in, I'd encourage you to pull it out and take notes. Our big idea is simple today. It's just two words. Reputation doesn't equal reality. Reputation doesn't equal reality. Now, everybody in the room, kids included, you've experienced things before that people told you about it. It had a reputation and you experienced it and it was different. Maybe somebody told you, man, this is a terrible movie. Don't go see it. You went and saw it and you go, you have terrible taste in movies. This is amazing, you know? Or you went to a restaurant and said, this this is the most amazing food in the world. And you went there and you're like, you've got terrible taste. I had a family member, I won't name them. We were visiting them. They go, we have this awesome new Mexican food spot in town. And they took us there. And it was like Taco Bell level Mexican food. It just was not, I was like, this is the best you have? It's terrible. And so the reputation doesn't always equal the reality. We're going to read today from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Revelation's the second easiest book to find in the Bible. It's right there in the very back. And, uh, and because it's kind of a shorter 
Josh got the longest one last week with Thyatira, but the shorter, one of the shorter ones, I want us just to all stand and, and honor God's word together and read it, if that's all right. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is what it says. You can, you can click it along, Susanna, for me. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. For if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who've not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear what you have for us today and that we wouldn't just hear it or see it, but we would act on it. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Today, I wanna walk you through the three components of the message that Jesus brings to this city of Sardis, because I think even though they weren't into zombies then, that they have some things that are true about their world that are also true about ours. And here's the first one, that Jesus has all the power. The beginning of this letter, like all of the letters, begins with Jesus describing himself. And he describes himself here in Revelation as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The one who has the seven spirits and the one who has the seven stars. You go, Scott, what does that mean? Well, it's a picture that's reflective of what happens in chapter one of Revelation that we just did a summary of the first week where where John got a vision of Jesus in heaven. And he's surrounded by these seven spirits that are symbolic of the Holy Spirit, that he holds in his hands seven stars, that he is on the throne, that he is in charge. And so when Jesus begins this letter, he's saying, I am writing to you, not just as somebody who has some good ideas, but I am the one who holds all the power. And he, he explains what those seven stars are in Revelation one twenty, where he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. In essence, what he's saying is that the seven, the seven angels of the seven churches are the seven leaders. He says, I have them. They're, they're mine. They're in my hand. And Jesus is making a pretty declarative statement here. He's saying, I am in charge of this church. I'm the one who's powerful over this church. Now, if you've attended church for a while, what you've probably experienced, let me turn off the TV. You guys got thoughts on that? Up, down? Okay. I'm going to leave it on for now, but give me a heads up if you want me to turn it off. But if you've been in church before, you may have been in a church where there was the person who was in charge of the church. And then there was the person who ran the church. You know what I'm talking about? They didn't have a job title, but whoever was actually on the payroll had to go to them to get whatever they wanted to approved. It's often the patriarch or the matriarch of the church. 
And they said, you know, after people even said, I'm, you know, that may be the pastor of that church, but I'm the one who runs that church. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm the one. I'm the one who runs the church. And what I find so interesting is, uh, is what Jesus says about his church in Matthew 16. He says to Peter, his disciple, he says, you're Peter. And on this rock, your confession about me, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's the hope we have that no matter what comes our way, the church of Jesus will prevail. But you know what's interesting? If you go to Sardis today, there is no church there. If you go to several of these cities mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, there's no church there. You go, Scott, how does that work? Jesus says right here, the gates of hell, I want to prevail against my church. Yeah, the big C church. But little C churches die every day. The churches you've been in, they're no longer here today. 85% of the church today in the United States is plateaued or declining. Jesus is going to build his church. His church will be there at the end. But any one expression of the church is not eternal. Especially when they lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the one in charge of the church. And the day that Jesus is no longer head of our church is the day that we start dying. No matter how many people are in the seats. Jesus is the one who has all the power. And so he begins this letter by saying, hey, just so we can make this clear. So we're all on the same page. I'm the one who has all the power here. And then he gets into the hard part. He says, things are worse than we realize. The second message he brings to this church is that things are worse. They're not better. We're not right about how bad they are. Things are actually worse. And what he says in Revelation 3 verse 1 is he says, I know your works. Now, typically, if you've been here for this series, you know, typically Jesus would go into those works. Like last week with Thyatira. I know your love and your faithfulness and your service. You know, with, with Ephesus. I know all the good things you've done. He's like, yeah, I know your works. Moving on. And he goes straight to the heart. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And there's four really pieces of this bad news he brings. And the first one he tells him is he says, realize you're almost dead. Realize that you're, you're almost dead. In, in scripture, there, there is dead, dead, and then there's spiritually dead. It's kind of like dead or mostly dead if you've seen Princess Bride. And he's saying to them, hey, everybody looks around and they see your works and they go, man, this church is alive. But Jesus goes, I know the truth. And you're almost dead. And to a city like Sardis, this would make total sense. Because they were the city that twice had been captured while they were sleeping. And so when Jesus says, hey, you think you're alive, but you're dead. And he says, wake up. All of those kids who had Sardis history in class growing up would remember Oh man, we did it again, didn't we? The third time it happened again. And so he's telling them, Hey, you have a reputation for being alive, but the reality is you're dead. 
Some of you have reputation. And that's great. Is it reality though? There's, there's word on the street about you. Is it true? People talk about you. What do they talk about when they talk about you? Is it reputation? Or is it reality? And many times, the things that have the best reputation, there's a fuller story. There's more happening. It's never been easier today than today to present a picture of yourself that is actually not true. They're getting divorced. I just saw their Instagram. It looked perfect. That company is going bankrupt. I thought they just hired all those new people. That person had an affair. I saw them at church last Sunday. Reputation doesn't always equal reality. A few years ago, there was a book that that took over the business scene. It's called Good to Great. If you're in the business world, you've heard of Good to Great. Sold millions of copies. Put Jim Collins, the writer, on the map. Collins studied some amazing companies. And how did they become amazing? And if you've been in the business world, you talked about getting the right, right people in the right seats on the bus. A level five leader. There's all sorts of phrases if you're in the business world that came from this book. But what's so interesting is the book came out about 17 years ago. And a bunch of those companies in the book, they crashed. They went bankrupt. They got bought out. They went from being number one to being on the bottom. And so like any good researcher, Jim Collins goes, I got to figure this out. He wrote a follow-up book called How the Mighty Fall where he studied those companies and he found a five-stage process to the fall. And the first step for every one of those companies was what he calls hubris, born of success. Hubris is a great word. Most of you didn't use it this week. (laughs) But you used other words. Proud, arrogant, full of yourself, puffed up, Ego, all those are synonyms to hubris. And for all these companies, they were successful and they knew it. They were the best and they knew it. And that was the beginning of their downfall. And like Sardis, they had this reputation for being alive. And Jesus says, yeah, and guess what? That's the reason why you're dead. It's like the the old proverb my mom taught me when I was little. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. So if you think that you're alive today, if you think that you're in a really great spot, if you think that you are massively successful, if you think you're the best, you are in danger. But you can stop it. You can stop it. And that's why he says next, rekindle the fire. He says to them, hey, you you, you think you're alive, but you're dead. So he says, strengthen what remains. And the, the idea of this Greek phrase is a word picture. And it's this picture that there's a fire that is now embers. It once was raging, 
but now it's just middling. But if you respond now, you can rekindle the fire and you can restore it, but it's gonna take lots of work. It's sometimes easier to light a new fire than it is to rekindle one that's almost dead. And so what he says is he says, church, you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. So hear this, strengthen what remains. There is still something there and bring it back to life. This is something that really hit home with me because in 2012, I went through a season of burnout. I had absolutely no desire to pray. The Bible was like reading the dictionary. I would sit down to write a sermon and that cursor would just I'd be in meetings and need to lead, and I had no vision. I felt like God had moved to Antarctica, and he was so far away. I knew that God was still real, but I didn't feel him at all. And the process from the day that I realized I was burned out till the day I think there was actually a fire going again was nine months a lot of work and a lot of patience. And so if you're here today and what God does in you is show you that you have been going through life thinking you're alive, but you're actually dead, it is not going to change like that. I love living in 2019, but our culture disciples you into thinking that if something doesn't happen immediately, nothing is going on. And the speed at which we live in our culture has deceived us into thinking that only the things that happen quickly matter. If you are discipled by our culture, you will never be patient. You will only learn that from the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Patience is a fruit of the spirit is not a fruit of our culture. And so if you're going to rekindle the fire, you're going to have to be incredibly patient and consistent to give it all you got. The third thing he says, he says, remember and respect the gospel. Remember and respect the gospel. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, he says, remember then what you have received and heard and keep it. He says, I've told you these things. Remember them. You've forgotten them. Keep them. And when I went through a season of burnout, I will tell you that what happened is that I forgot the gospel. My image of what I meant to follow Jesus looked like this. It was a giant weight on me. And the reason why I burned out is I was trying to serve God in my own strength. I was trying to earn God's favor through my performance. I was trying to earn God's love by doing everything right. And I was exhausted, not just in my body, but in my soul. And some of you today, on the outside, you look alive, but on the inside, you are dead because you have bought into the lie that the way that you earn God's favor is by doing all the right things. 
And the way to know you can go to heaven when you die is to get everything right on the way. And your soul is like that sponge that has not one ounce of water in it and is thirsty. And when I learned in my season of burnout was this, that what our souls long for most cannot be achieved. It can only be received. And this church that has done all the right things, Jesus says to them, he says, you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. And you need to remember the gospel, which says you can do nothing to earn or achieve this. This is the great sin in the church today that we believe that good people go to heaven when they die. And we believe that we're good people. Something bad happens to you. You end up in a hard time and go, what? I was a good person. None of this has anything to do with your goodness. Because if you were good, why on earth did he have to die? You're not good. You're dead. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And being here today is a good thing. But being here won't make you good. Because you're dead without Jesus. You don't need to be made good. You need to be made alive. And so the final part, he says, he says, repent fully. He says, remember these things I've told you. Keep it and repent. And in this series, we've been doing kind of an unintentional work to reclaim that word. From the place where we throw it off as those crazy people that yell at us on the streets of Las Vegas or New York or where the major city you're in. The word repentance, we've said, is this larger word that means a change of mind that leads to a change in action. Kids, if you're in the room, when you do something wrong, your parents don't want you to say, I'm sorry. They do. But they want you to stop there. They don't want you to know that it was bad that you did that thing wrong. They want you to do something different. If you, if you have people who work for you, you don't want them just to know they made a mistake. You want them to fix it. That's repentance. Repentance hasn't happened until you've done something different, until you've changed. And for many of us, when we hear repentance, we actually think regret. Regret means to feel sorry or unhappy about something you did. Or unable to do. He doesn't say regret. He doesn't say feel bad that you're dead. He said, no, repent. Go in a new direction. Repent. And this is why. If you've done something that's put your marriage in jeopardy, your spouse does not want you to have regret. They want you to repent. If you've got a relationship that's fragmented, they don't want you just to have regret. They want you to repent. And if you want God to bring something new to life, the spiritual word is revival. Revival always begins with repentance. And the church would say, man, I, I, want, I want revival. I want revival in America. Okay, Repent. Not the people out there. This is a letter to the church. This isn't a letter to the godless, secular Roman culture. This is a letter to the church. You want revival in America? Okay, build a spirit of repentance. 
Stop talking about what's wrong out there and ask God to break your heart for what's true in here. Don't hate the sin of our culture more than you you hate your own sin. When we get broken more over our own sin than our culture's sin, things will begin to change. But as long as we sit in judgment over them while we are not in repentance over our own, nothing will change. This is a really fun section of scripture, y'all. And then number three, we can have confidence in God's promises. So after this really hard word to this church, he gives them these promises. In in Revelation 3, 4, he says, yet there are a few of you who've not soiled your garments. It's a vivid image, especially on family Sunday, you know? And they will walk with me in white for they are worthy, Jesus says. And he says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and his angels. There's a couple components of this confidence we can have in Jesus. He says, I'm gonna give you new clothes, white clothes. Even today, white is a symbol of purity. It's the reason that a bride comes down the aisle in white. It's a symbol of purity. And he says, I'm going to give you new clothes, not the ones you've soiled through your own sin and brokenness. I'm going to give you new clothes, white clothes. You're going to stand in purity, not your own, mine, not in your own righteousness, but my righteousness. And he says, you can have total certainty. He speaks to them and he says, you know, I will never blot your name out of my book. In a city like Sardis, they would have a register and it was all the names of all the people who lived in the city who were citizens And you could do something to have your name blotted out. To break a law, commit a crime. They pull the big eraser out and blot you out. Jesus says, I will never blot you out of my book. Now, this is why some people in this passage have said, well, that's why you can lose your salvation. You know, if you do the wrong things, Jesus, you know, he's going to let you in heaven. But John wrote this book. And look what John says in his gospel, recording the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come in the judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then in John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you could do something to lose your salvation, then you could do something to earn it. But if you can do nothing to earn it, why on earth would you be worthy to do something to lose it? Jesus says, I died for you. I'm the reason you're forgiven. And nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand. I will never blot your name in my book of life. But if you think your name is in the book of life, because you were born in America, born in a Christian family, and have never missed a Sunday, you may not be where you think you are. I'm going to skip a couple slides because I got excited today. And he says, you can have ultimate confidence. There's this picture of this judgment day in a courtroom. And God says, okay, what about him? What about her? And Jesus stands up and says, I got them. They're mine. They're good. So my question for you is this. Where's your confidence? Like right now, in the the trial you're in, and the struggle you're in, where's your confidence? Is it in your own, your own resourcefulness? Is it in your own goodness? Is it in your own abilities? 
or, or is it in what Jesus has done for you? I don't mean that in a cliche way. I mean that literally. When you end up in crisis, you will have to decide, why am I confident? And in three weeks on Easter Sunday, we're going to baptize people. Not because they're good people. Not because they just like being on stage. None of them want to be on stage. They're all terrified of it. But you know why they get up here? The reason they get up here, young and old, is that Jesus took them when they were dead and he made them alive. And they want to tell you about that. They want you to know that they have confidence in the future because of what he's done. And my question for you is what about you? What are you going to do with Jesus? There's some of you right now who I think you think you're okay because you're reading the Bible and you're praying and you're in church and you're working really hard at it. And those are good things, but they don't move you from death to life. And there's some of you in here who I love and you think you're alive, but you're dead and you've been playing the church game. And I don't want you to wake up one day in the middle of a crisis and go, why am I being shaken? Why am I have no confidence? Because you put your confidence in the wrong things. Hebrews 12, 27 says, what can be shaken will be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. Some of you are being shaken right now. And that's because you put your confidence in shaky things. And nothing will reveal your confidence like a good crisis. Nothing will reveal your confidence like like waiting for that call from the doctor. Nothing will shake your confidence like your spouse saying, I want a divorce. Your kids saying, I want nothing to do with you. And you will learn in that moment where you have put your confidence. Can you skip me ahead to the next steps? I'm going to cut that section out right here. So here's the next steps I have for you today. Here's the first one. I want you to check your zombie level. Bet you've never had that before at church. So here I've given you three zombie levels. So we have alive. We got half alive, half dead and full on zombie. You should pick one. What are you? Are you alive? Are you not sure? Are you feeling uncomfortable? Cause you think me maybe not as alive as you thought you were. Number two, I I, I want to encourage you to repent and embrace the truth of the gospel. Not just to regret going, yes, God, I, I got confused there, but actually turn around and go in a new direction. And one of the things you could do is every day this week, what you could do is you could read Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, which in my mind, the Bible's really long, but it's one of the best, short, concentrated descriptions of the gospel. And you could read it every day this week As a reminder, this is what the gospel is. Tim Keller really summarizes this well. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. And at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's better and worse at the same time. But it's actually worse and better if you do in the right order. And then number three, put your hope and certainty in Jesus Put your hope and your certainty in Jesus. I shared it earlier, but Hebrews 12 has been on my mind this whole week. 
And it says, once again, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Some of you right now are being shaken. He goes, Scott, our country's being shaken. Yeah, our country's a created thing. You read this book? America's not in this book. Because our country's a created thing. And if your hope is in America, you're going to be shaken. And hopefully you'll wake up and put your hope in something bigger. That cannot be shaken. Something that will remain. Let's pray. God, I pray for my friends who are in this room who are being woken up even right now. Maybe they're, they're fighting for a marriage that's hanging by a thread. Maybe they're fighting for their sobriety and they're hanging by a thread. Maybe they're, they're fighting for their health and it's hanging by a thread. And what you're trying to do through this suffering is to wake them up and show them that their hope is in shakable things. That they thought they were alive, but they were actually dead. And that you didn't come to make us good, perfect rule followers. You came to bring us back to life. That's why Easter's worth celebrating, because you came back from life. You came back to life from the dead, and you want to do the same thing in us. And so I just pray right now for the people in this room who have put their faith in their own goodness and believed that's why they can have confidence in the future, that you would shake them and wake them. And I pray they would look to you right now in this room. I believe that there's somebody here today that has never put their faith and confidence and certainty in Jesus so that their hope and their future is secure. And if that's you, you should raise your hand right now. you have never put your hope and your security and your confidence in Jesus and you're feeling stirred that that is your next step today, I want you to raise your hand right now. And I'm going to pray with you and I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to invite you to say these words with me. Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you today. I know that I am not a good person. I'm dead spiritually. I pray that you would bring me back to life. I pray that because you rose from the dead, you could bring my life back from the dead. I give you my dead life. And I pray that you would give me a new one that's alive. Jesus, I put my faith and trust in you. I pray that I would not be shaken. In your name we pray, amen. We're gonna have our elders over here on the sides. They'll be up here through this song. A song that says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know the future, my life is worth the living because he lives. And if you mean those words, I'd encourage you to stand them up and sing with the band this morning. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. 
For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.